Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne Chapter 4 A Meeting of the Automobile Club Was the mystery of the Great Erie to be solved some day by chances beyond our imagining? That was known only to the future. And was the solution a matter of the first importance? That was beyond doubt, since the safety of the people of Western Carolina perhaps depended upon it. Yet a fortnight after my return to Washington, public attention was wholly distracted from this problem by another very different in nature, but equally astonishing. Toward the middle of that month of May, the newspapers of Pennsylvania informed their readers of some strange occurrences in different parts of the state. On the roads which radiated from Philadelphia, the chief city, there circulated an extraordinary vehicle, of which no one could describe the form, or the nature, or even the size, so rapidly did it rush past. It was an automobile, all were agreed on that, but as to what motor drove it, only imagination could say, and when the popular imagination is aroused, what limit is there to its hypotheses? At that period the most improved automobiles, whether driven by steam, gasoline, or electricity, could not accomplish much more than sixty miles an hour a speed that the railroads, with their most rapid expresses, scarce exceed on the best lines of America and Europe. Now this new automobile which was astonishing the world travelled at more than double this speed. It is needless to add that such a rate constituted an extreme danger on the high roads, as much so for vehicles as for pedestrians. This rushing mass, coming like a thunderbolt, preceded by a formidable rumbling, caused a whirlwind which tore the branches from the trees along the road, terrified the animals browsing in adjoining fields, and scattered and killed the birds which could not resist the suction of the tremendous air-currents engendered by its passage. And a bizarre detail to which the newspapers drew particular attention, the surface of the roads was scarcely even scratched by the wheels of the apparition, which left behind it no such ruts as are usually made by heavy vehicles. At most there was a light touch, a mere brushing of the dust. It was only the tremendous speed which raised behind the vehicle such whirlwinds of dust. It is probable, commented the New York Herald, that the extreme rapidity of motion destroys the weight. Naturally there were protests from all sides. It was impossible to permit the mad speed of this apparition which threatened to overthrow and destroy everything in its passage, equipages and people. But how could it be stopped? No one knew to whom the vehicle belonged, nor whence it came, nor whither it went. It was seen but for an instant as it darted forward like a bullet in its dizzy flight. 
how could one seize a cannon-ball in the air as it leaped from the mouth of the gun? I repeat, there was no evidence as to the character of the propelling engine. It left behind it no smoke, no steam, no odor of gasoline or any other oil. It seemed probable, therefore, that the vehicle ran by electricity, and that its accumulators were of an unknown model, using some unknown fluid. The public imagination, highly excited, readily accepted every sort of rumor about this mysterious automobile. It was said to be a supernatural car. It was driven by a spectre, by one of the chauffeurs of hell, a goblin from another world, a monster escaped from some mythological menagerie, in short, the devil in person, who could defy all human intervention, having at his command invisible and infinite satanic powers. But even Satan himself had no right to run at such a speed over the roads of the United States without a special permit, without a number on his car, and without a regular license and it was certain that not a single municipality had given him permission to go two hundred miles an hour. Public security demanded that some means be found to unmask the secret of this terrible chauffeur. Moreover, it was not only Pennsylvania that served as the theatre of his sportive eccentricities. The police reported his appearance in other states, in Kentucky near Frankfort, in Ohio near Columbus, in Tennessee near Nashville in Missouri near Jefferson, and finally in Illinois in the neighborhood of Chicago. The alarm having been given, it became the duty of the authorities to take steps against this public danger. To arrest or even to halt an apparition moving at such a speed was scarcely practicable. A better way would be to erect across the roads solid gateways with which the flying machine must come in contact sooner or later and be smashed into a thousand pieces. "'Nonsense!' declared the incredulous. "'This madman would know well how to circle around such obstructions.' "'And if necessary,' added others, "'the machine would leap over the barriers. "'And if he is indeed the devil, "'he has, as a former angel, "'presumably preserved his wings, "'and so he will take to flight.' "'But this last was but the suggestion.' of foolish old gossips who did not stop to study the matter. For if the King of Hades possessed a pair of wings, why did he obstinately persist in running around on the earth at the risk of crushing his own subjects, when he might more easily have hurled himself through space as free as a bird? Such was the situation when, in the last week of May, a fresh event occurred, which seemed to show that the United States was indeed helpless in the hands of some unapproachable monster. And after the new world, would not the old in its turn be desecrated by the mad career of this remarkable automobilist? The following occurrence was reported in all the newspapers of the Union, and with what comments and outcries it is easy to imagine. A race was to be held by the Automobile Club of Wisconsin, over the roads of that state of which Madison is the capital. The route laid out formed an excellent track, about two hundred miles in length, starting from Prairie du Chien on the western frontier, passing by Madison, and ending a little above Milwaukee on the borders of Lake Michigan. Except for the Japanese road between Nikko and Namode, 
bordered by giant cypresses, there is no better track in the world than this of Wisconsin. It runs straight and level as an arrow for sometimes fifty miles at a stretch. Many and noted were the machines entered for this great race. Every kind of motor vehicle was permitted to compete, even motorcycles as well as automobiles. The machines were of all makes and nationalities. The sum of the different prizes reached fifty thousand dollars, so that the race was sure to be desperately contested. New records were expected to be made. Calculating on the maximum speed hitherto attained, of perhaps eighty miles an hour, this international contest covering two hundred miles would last about three hours. And, to avoid all danger, the state authorities of Wisconsin had forbidden all other traffic between Prairie du Chien and Milwaukee during three hours on the morning of the 30th of May. Thus, if there were any accidents, those who suffered would be themselves to blame. There was an enormous crowd, and it was not composed only of the people of Wisconsin. Many thousands gathered from the neighboring states of Illinois, Michigan, Iowa, Indiana, and even from New York. Among the sportsmen assembled were many foreigners, English, French, Germans, and Austrians, each nationality, of course, supporting the chauffeurs of its land. Moreover, as this was the United States, the country of the greatest gamblers of the world, bets were made of every sort, and of enormous amounts. The start was to be made at eight o'clock in the morning, and to avoid crowding and the accidents which must result from it, the automobiles were to follow each other at two-minute intervals, along the roads whose borders were black with spectators. The first ten racers, numbered by lot, were dispatched between eight o'clock and twenty minutes past. Unless there was some disastrous accident, some of these machines would surely arrive at the goal by eleven o'clock. The others followed in order. An hour and a half had passed. There remained but a single contestant at Prairie du Chien. Word was sent back and forth by telephone every five minutes as to the order of the racers. Midway between Madison and Milwaukee, the lead was held by a machine of Renault Brothers, four-cylindered, of twenty horsepower, and with Michelin tires. It was closely followed by a Harvard-Watson car, and by a Dion-Bouton. Some accidents had already occurred. Other machines were hopelessly behind. Not more than a dozen would contest the finish. Several chauffeurs had been injured, but not seriously. And even had they been killed, the death of men is but a detail, not considered of great importance in that astonishing country of America. Naturally the excitement became more intense as one approached the finishing line near Milwaukee. There was assembled the most curious, the most interested, and there the passions of the moment were unchained. By ten o'clock it was evident that the first prize, twenty thousand dollars, lay between five machines, two American, two French, and one English. Imagine, therefore, the fury with which bets were being made under the influence of national pride. The regular bookmakers could scarcely meet the demands of those who wished to wager. Offers and amounts were hurled from lip to lip with feverish rapidity. One to three on the Harvard Watson! One to two on the Dion Botan! Even money on the Renault! These cries rang along the line of spectators at each new announcement from the telephones. Suddenly, 
at half-past nine by the town clock of Prairie du Chien, two miles beyond that town was heard a tremendous noise and a rumbling which proceeded from the midst of a flying cloud of dust, accompanied by shrieks like those of a naval siren. Scarcely had the crowds time to draw to one side to escape a destruction which would have included hundreds of victims. The cloud swept by like a hurricane. No one could distinguish what it was that passed with such speed. There was no exaggeration in saying that its rate was at least one hundred and fifty miles an hour. The apparition passed and disappeared in an instant, leaving behind it a long train of white dust, as an express locomotive leaves behind a train of smoke. Evidently it was an automobile with a most extraordinary motor. If it maintained this arrow-like speed, it would reach the contestants in the forefront of the race. It would pass them with this speed double their own. It would arrive first at the goal. And then from all parts arose an uproar, as soon as the spectators had nothing more to fear. It is that infernal machine! Yes, the one the police cannot stop. But has not been heard of for a fortnight. But it was supposed to be done for, destroyed, gone forever. It is a devil's car, driven by hell-fire, and with Satan driving. In truth, if he were not the devil, who could this mysterious chauffeur be, driving with this unbelievable velocity, his no less mysterious machine? At least it was beyond doubt that this was the same machine which had already attracted so much attention. If the police believed that they had frightened it away, that it was never to be heard of more, well, the police were mistaken, which happens in America as elsewhere. The first stunned moment of surprise having passed, many people rushed to the telephones to warn those further along the route of the danger which menaced, not only the people, but also the automobiles scattered along the road. When this terrible madman arrived like an avalanche, they would be smashed to pieces, ground into powder, annihilated. And from the collision might not the destroyer himself emerge safe and sound? He must be so adroit, this chauffeur of chauffeurs, he must handle his machine with such perfection of eye and hand, that he knew, no doubt, how to escape from every situation. Fortunately, the Wisconsin authorities had taken such precautions that the road would be clear except for contesting automobiles. But what right had this machine among them? And what said the racers themselves, who, warned by telephone, had to sheer aside from the road in their struggle for the grand prize? By their estimate, this amazing vehicle was going at least one hundred and thirty miles an hour. Fast as was their speed, it shot by them at such a rate that they could hardly make out even the shape of the machine, a sort of lengthened spindle, probably not over thirty feet long. Its wheels spun with such velocity that they could scarce be seen. For the rest, the machine left behind it neither smoke nor scent. As for the driver, hidden in the interior of his machine, he had been quite invisible. He remained as unknown as when he had first appeared on the various roads throughout the country. Milwaukee was promptly warned of the coming of this interloper. Fancy the excitement the news caused! The immediate purpose agreed upon was to stop this projectile, to erect across its route an obstacle against which it would smash into a thousand pieces. But was there time? 
Would not the machine appear at any moment? And what need was there, since the track ended on the edge of Lake Michigan, and so the vehicle would be forced to stop there anyway, unless its supernatural driver could ride the water as well as the land? Here, also, as all along the route, the most extravagant suggestions were offered. Even those who would not admit that the mysterious chauffeur must be Satan in person allowed that he might be some monster escaped from the fantastic visions of the apocalypse. And now there were no longer minutes to wait. Any second might bring the expected apparition. It was not yet eleven o'clock when a rumbling was heard far down the track, and the dust rose in violent whirlwinds. Harsh whistlings shrieked through the air warning all to give passage to the monster. It did not slacken speed at the finish. Lake Michigan was not half a mile beyond, and the machine must certainly be hurled into the water. Could it be that the mechanician was no longer master of his mechanism? There could be little doubt of it. Like a shooting star, the vehicle flashed through Milwaukee. When it had passed the city, would it plunge itself to destruction in the waters of Lake Michigan? At any rate, when it disappeared at a slight bend in the road, no trace was to be found of its passage. End of chapter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MASTER OF THE WORLD by Jules Verne CHAPTER V ALONG THE SHORES OF NEW ENGLAND At the time when the newspapers were filled with these reports, I was again in Washington. On my return I had presented myself at my chief's office, but had been unable to see him. Family affairs had suddenly called him away, to be absent some weeks. Mr. Ward, however, undoubtedly knew of the failure of my mission. The newspapers, especially those of North Carolina, had given full details of our ascent of the Great Erie. Naturally I was much annoyed by this delay, which further fretted my restless curiosity. I could turn to no other plans for the future. Could I give up the hope of learning the secret of the Great Erie? No. I would return to the attack a dozen times, if necessary and despite every failure. Surely the winning of access within those walls was not a task beyond human power. A scaffolding might be raised to the summit of the cliff, or a tunnel might be pierced through its depth. Our engineers met problems more difficult every day. But in this case it was necessary to consider the expense, which might easily grow out of proportion to the advantages to be gained. A tunnel would cost many thousand dollars, and what good would it accomplish beyond satisfying the public curiosity, and my own? My personal resources were wholly insufficient for the achievement. Mr. Ward, who held the government's funds, was away. I even thought of trying to interest some millionaire. Oh, if I could but have promised one of them some gold or silver mines within the mountain! But such an hypothesis was not admissible. The chain of the Appalachians is not situated in a gold-bearing region like that of the Pacific Mountains, the Transvaal, or Australia. 
It was not until the 15th of June that Mr. Ward returned to duty. Despite my lack of success, he received me warmly. "'Here is our poor Struck,' cried he at my entrance. "'Our poor Struck, who has failed!' "'No more, Mr. Ward, than if you had charged me to investigate the surface of the moon,' answered I. We found ourselves face to face with purely natural obstacles, insurmountable with the forces then at our command. "'I do not doubt that, Struck. I do not doubt that in the least.' Nevertheless, the fact remains that you have discovered nothing of what is going on within the Great Erie. Nothing, Mr. Ward. You saw no sign of fire? None. And you heard no suspicious noises whatever? None. Then it is still uncertain if there is really a volcano there? Still uncertain, Mr. Ward. But if it is there, we have good reason to believe that it has sunk into a profound sleep. "'Still,' returned Mr. Ward, "'there is nothing to show that it will not wake up again any day, Struck. "'It is not enough that a volcano should sleep. "'It must be absolutely extinguished, "'unless, indeed, all these threatening rumours "'have been born solely in the Carolinian imagination.' "'That is not possible, sir,' I said. "'Both Mr. Smith, the Mayor of Morganton, "'and his friend, the Mayor of Pleasant Garden, "'are reliable men.' and they speak from their own knowledge in this matter. Flames have certainly risen above the Great Erie. Strange noises have issued from it. There can be no doubt whatever of the reality of these phenomena. Granted, declared Mr. Ward, I admit that the evidence is unassailable. So the deduction to be drawn is that the Great Erie has not yet given up its secret. If we are determined to know it, Mr. Ward, the solution is only a solution of expense. Pickaxes and dynamite would soon conquer those walls. No doubt, responded the chief. But such an undertaking hardly seems justified, since the mountain is now quiet. We will wait a while. Perhaps nature herself will disclose her mystery. Mr. Ward, believe me that I regret deeply that I have been unable to solve the problem you entrusted to me, I said. "'Nonsense! Do not upset yourself, Struck. Take your defeat philosophically. We cannot always be successful, even in the police. How many criminals escape us? I believe we should never capture one of them, if they were a little more intelligent and less imprudent, and if they did not compromise themselves so stupidly. Nothing, it seems to me, would be easier than to plan a crime, a theft, or an assassination, and to execute it without arousing any suspicions, or leaving any traces to be followed. You understand, Struck, I do not want to give our criminals lessons. I much prefer to have them remain as they are. Nevertheless, there are many whom the police will never be able to track down. On this matter I shared absolutely the opinion of my chief. It is among rascals that one finds the most fools. For this very reason I had been much surprised that none of the authorities had been able to throw any light upon the recent performances of the demon automobile, and when Mr. Ward brought up this subject I did not conceal from him my astonishment. He pointed out that the vehicle was practically unpursuable, that in its earlier appearances it had apparently vanished from all roads even before a telephone message could be sent ahead. Active and numerous police agents have been spread throughout the country, 
but no one of them had encountered the delinquent. He did not move continuously, from place to place, even at his amazing speed, but seemed to appear only for a moment, and then to vanish into thin air. True, he had at length remained visible along the entire route from Prairie du Chien to Milwaukee, and he had covered in less than an hour and a half this track of two hundred miles. But since then there had been no news whatever of the machine. Arrived at the end of the route, driven onward by its own impetus, unable to stop, had it indeed been engulfed within the waters of Lake Michigan? Must we conclude that the machine and its driver had both perished, that there was no longer any danger to be feared from either? The great majority of the public refused to accept this conclusion. They fully expected the machine to reappear. Mr. Ward frankly admitted that the whole matter seemed to him most extraordinary, and I shared his view. Assuredly, if this infernal chauffeur did not return, his apparition would have to be placed among those superhuman mysteries which it is not given to man to understand. We had fully discussed this affair, the chief and I, and I thought that our interview was at an end when, after pacing the room for a few moments, he said abruptly, Yes, what happened there at Milwaukee was very strange, but here is something no less so. With this he handed me a report which he had received from Boston, on a subject of which the evening papers had just begun to apprise their readers. While I read it, Mr. Ward was summoned from the room. I seated myself by the window, and studied with extreme attention the matter of the report. For some days the waters along the coast of Maine, Connecticut, and Massachusetts had been the scene of an appearance which no one could exactly describe. A moving body would appear amid the waters, some two or three miles offshore, and go through rapid evolutions. It would flash for a while, back and forth among the waves, and then dart out of sight. The body moved with such lightning speed that the best telescopes could hardly follow it. Its length did not seem to exceed thirty feet. Its cigar-shaped form and greenish color made it difficult to distinguish against the background of the ocean. It had been most frequently observed along the coast between Cape Cod and Nova Scotia. From Providence, from Boston, from Portsmouth, and from Portland, motor-boats and steam-launches had repeatedly attempted to approach this moving body and even to give it chase. They could not get anywhere near it. Pursuit seemed useless. It darted like an arrow beyond the range of view. Naturally, widely differing opinions were held as to the nature of this object, but no hypothesis rested on any secure basis. Seamen were as much at a loss as others. At first sailors thought it must be some great fish, like a whale, but it is well known that all these animals come to the surface with a certain regularity to breathe, and spout up columns of mingled air and water. Now, this strange animal, if it was an animal, had never blown, as the whalers say, nor had it ever made any noises of breathing. Yet if it were not one of these huge marine mammals, how was this unknown monster to be classed? Did it belong among the legendary dwellers in the deep, the krakens, the octopuses, the leviathans, the famous sea serpents? At any rate, since this monster, whatever it was, had appeared along the New England shores, 
the little fishing smacks and pleasure boats dared not venture forth. Wherever it appeared the boats fled to the nearest harbour, as was but prudent. If the animal was of a ferocious character, none cared to await its attack. As to the large ships and coast steamers, they had nothing to fear from any monster, whale or otherwise. Several of them had seen this creature at a distance of some miles, but when they attempted to approach, it fled rapidly away. One day, even, a fast United States gunboat went out from Boston, if not to pursue the monster, at least to send after it a few cannon shot. Almost instantly the animal disappeared, and the attempt was vain. As yet, however, the monster had shown no intention of attacking either boats or people. At this moment Mr. Ward returned, and I interrupted my reading to say, "'There seems as yet no reason to complain of this sea-serpent. It flees before big ships. It does not pursue little ones. Feeling and intelligence are not very strong in fishes.' "'Yet their emotions exist, Strock, and if strongly aroused. But, Mr. Ward, the beast seems not at all dangerous. One or two things will happen.' Either it will presently quit these coasts, or finally it will be captured and we shall be able to study it at our leisure here in the museum at Washington. "'And if it is not a marine animal?' asked Mr. Ward. "'What else can it be?' I protested in surprise. "'Finish your reading,' said Mr. Ward. I did so, and found that in the second part of the report my chief had underlined some passages in red pencil. For some time no one had doubted that this was an animal, and that if it were vigorously pursued it would at last be driven from our shores. But a change of opinion had come about. People began to ask if, instead of a fish, this were not some new and remarkable kind of boat. Certainly in that case its engine must be one of amazing power. Perhaps the inventor, before selling the secret of his invention, sought to attract public attention and to astound the maritime world. Such surety in the movements of his boat, grace in its every evolution, such ease in defying pursuit by its arrow-like speed, surely these were enough to arouse worldwide curiosity. At that time great progress had been made in the manufacture of marine engines. Huge transatlantic steamers completed the ocean passage in five days and the engineers had not yet spoken their last word. Neither were the navies of the world behind. The cruisers, the torpedo-boats, the torpedo-destroyers, could match the swiftest steamers of the Atlantic and Pacific, or of the Indian trade. If, however, this were a boat of some new design, there had as yet been no opportunity to observe its form. As to the engines which drove it, they must be of a power far beyond the fastest known by what force they worked was equally a problem. Since the boat had no sails, it was not driven by the wind, and since it had no smokestack, it was not driven by steam. At this point in the report I again paused in my reading and considered the comment I wished to make. "'What are you puzzling over, Strock?' demanded my chief. "'It is this, Mr. Ward.' The motive power of this so-called boat must be as tremendous and as unknown as that of the remarkable automobile which has so amazed us all. So that is your idea, is it, Strock? Yes, Mr. Ward. There was but one conclusion to be drawn. 
if the mysterious chauffeur had disappeared, if he had perished with his machine in Lake Michigan, it was equally important now to win the secret of this no less mysterious navigator, and it must be won before he in his turn plunged into the abyss of the ocean. Was it not the interest of the inventor to disclose his invention? Would not the American government, or any other, give him any price he chose to ask? Yet, unfortunately, since the inventor of the terrestrial apparition had persisted in preserving his incognito, was it not to be feared that the inventor of the marine apparition would equally preserve his? Even if the first machine still existed, it was no longer heard from, and would not the second, in the same way, after having disclosed its powers, disappear in its turn, without a single trace? What gave weight to this probability was that since the arrival of this report at Washington twenty-four hours before, the presence of the extraordinary boat hadn't been announced from anywhere along the shore. Neither had it been seen on any other coast, though, of course, the assertion that it would not reappear at all would have been hazardous, to say the least. I noted another interesting and possibly important point. It was a singular coincidence which indeed Mr. Ward suggested to me, at the same moment that I was considering it. This was that only after the disappearance of the wonderful automobile had the no less wonderful boat come into view. Moreover, their engines both possessed a most dangerous power of locomotion. If both should go rushing at the same time over the face of the world, the same danger would threaten mankind everywhere, in boats, in vehicles, and on foot. Therefore it was absolutely necessary that the police should in some manner interfere to protect the public ways of travel. That is what Mr. Ward pointed out to me, and our duty was obvious. But how could we accomplish this task? We discussed the matter for some time, and I was just about to leave when Mr. Ward made one last suggestion. "'Have you not observed, Strock?' said he that there is a sort of fantastic resemblance between the general appearance of this boat and this automobile? There is something of the sort, Mr. Ward. Well, is it not possible that the two are one? End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne. Chapter 6 The First Letter. After leaving Mr. Ward, I returned to my home in Long Street. There I had plenty of time to consider this strange case uninterrupted by either wife or children. My household consisted solely of an ancient servant, who, having been formerly in the service of my mother, had now continued for fifteen years in mine. Two months before I had obtained a leave of absence. It had still two weeks to run, unless indeed some unforeseen circumstance interrupted it, some mission which could not be delayed. This leave, as I have shown, had already been interrupted for four days by my exploration of the Great Erie. 
and now was it not my duty to abandon my vacation and endeavour to throw light upon the remarkable events of which the road to milwaukee and the shore of new england had been in turn the scene i would have given much to solve the twin mysteries but how was it possible to follow the track of this automobile or this boat seated in my easy-chair after breakfast with my pipe lighted i opened my newspaper to what should i turn politics interested me but little with its eternal strife between the republicans and the democrats neither did i care for the news of society nor for the sporting page you will not be surprised then that my first idea was to see if there was any news from north carolina about the great erie there was little hope of this however for mr smith had promised to telegraph me at once if anything occurred i felt quite sure that the mayor of morganton was as eager for information and as watchful as could have been myself the paper told me nothing new it dropped idly from my hand and i remained deep in thought what most frequently recurred to me was the suggestion of mr ward that perhaps the automobile and the boat which had attracted our attention were in reality one and the same very probably at least the two machines had been built by the same hand and beyond doubt these were similar engines which generated this remarkable speed more than doubling the previous records of earth and sea the same inventor repeated i evidently this hypothesis had strong grounds the fact that the two machines had not yet appeared at the same time added weight to the idea i murmured to myself after the mystery of great erie comes that of milwaukee and boston will this new problem be as difficult to solve as was the other i noted idly that this new affair had a general resemblance to the other since both menaced the security of the general public to be sure only the inhabitants of the blue ridge region had been in danger from an eruption or possible earthquake at great erie while now on every road of the united states or along every league of its coasts and harbors every inhabitant was in danger from this vehicle or this boat with its sudden appearance and insane speed i found that as was to be expected the newspapers not only suggested but enlarged upon the dangers of the case timid people everywhere were much alarmed my old servant naturally credulous and superstitious was particularly upset that same day after dinner as she was clearing away the things she stopped before me a water-bottle in one hand the serviette in the other and asked anxiously is there no news sir none i answered knowing well to what she referred the automobile has not come back no nor the boat nor the boat there is no news even in the best informed papers but your secret police information we are no wiser then sir if you please of what use are the police it is a question which has fazed me more than once now you see what will happen continued the old housekeeper complainingly some fine morning he will come without warning this terrible chauffeur and rush down our street here and kill us all good when that happens there will be some chance of catching him he will never be arrested sir why not because he is the devil himself and you can't arrest the devil 
Decidedly, thought I, the devil has many uses, and if he did not exist we would have to invent him, to give people some way of explaining the inexplicable. It was he who lit the flames of the Great Erie. It was he who smashed the record in the Wisconsin race. It is he who is scurrying along the shores of Connecticut and Massachusetts. But putting to one side this evil spirit who is so necessary, for the convenience of the ignorant, there was no doubt that we were facing a most bewildering problem. Had both of these machines disappeared forever? They had passed like a meteor, like a star shooting through space, and in a hundred years the adventure would become a legend, much to the taste of the gossips of the next century. For several days the newspapers of America and even those of Europe continued to discuss these events. Editorials crowded upon editorials. Rumors were added to rumors. Storytellers of every kind crowded to the front. The public of two continents was interested. In some parts of Europe there was even jealousy that America should have been chosen as the field of such an experience. If these marvelous inventors were American, then their country, their army and navy, would have a great advantage over others. The United States might acquire an incontestable superiority. Under the date of the 10th of June, a New York paper published a carefully studied article on this phase of the subject, comparing the speed of the swiftest known vessels with the smallest minimum of speed which could possibly be assigned to the new boat. The article demonstrated that if the United States secured this secret, Europe would be but three days away from her, while she would still be five days from Europe. If our own police had searched diligently to discover the mystery of the Great Erie, the secret service of every country in the world was now interested in these new problems. Mr. Ward referred to the matter each time I saw him. Our chat would begin by his rallying me about my ill success in Carolina, and I would respond by reminding him that success there was only a question of expense. "'Never mind, my good Strock,' said he. "'There will come a chance for our clever inspector to regain his laurels. Take now this affair of the automobile and the boat. If you could clear that up in advance of all the detectives of the world, what an honour it would be to our department! What glory for you!' "'It certainly would, Mr. Ward.' and if you put the matter in my charge who knows struck let us wait a while let us wait matters stood thus when on the morning of june fifteenth my old servant brought me a letter from the letter carrier a registered letter for which i had to sign i looked at the address i did not know the handwriting the postmark dating from two days before was stamped at the post office of morganton Morganton. Here at last was, no doubt, news from Mr. Elias Smith. "'Yes!' exclaimed I, speaking to my old servant for lack of another. "'It must be from Mr. Smith at last. I know no one else in Morganton, and if he writes, he has news.' "'Morganton,' said the old woman, "'isn't that the place where the demon set fire to their mountain?' "'Exactly.' "'Oh, sir, I hope you don't mean to go back there.' "'Because you will end by being burned up in that furnace of the Great Erie, and I wouldn't want you buried that way, sir.' "'Cheer up, and let us see if it is not better news than that.' 
The envelope was sealed with red sealing-wax, and stamped with a sort of coat of arms, surmounted with three stars. The paper was thick and very strong. I broke the envelope, and drew out the letter. It was a single sheet, folded in four, and written on one side only. My first glance was for the signature. There was no signature. Nothing but three initials at the end of the last line. "'The letter is not from the mayor of Morganton,' said I. "'Then from whom?' asked the old servant, doubly curious in her quality as a woman and as an old gossip. Looking again at the three initials of the signature, I said, "'I know no one for whom these letters would stand, neither at Morganton nor elsewhere.' The handwriting was bold, both upstrokes and downstrokes very sharp, about twenty lines in all. Here is the letter, of which I, with good reason, retained an exact copy. It was dated, to my extreme stupefaction, from that mysterious Great Erie. Great Erie, Blue Ridge Mountains, to Mr. Strock, North Carolina, June 13th, Chief Inspector of Police, 34 Long Street, Washington, D.C. Sir, you were charged with the mission of penetrating the Great Erie. You came on April the 28th, accompanied by the mayor of Morganton and two guides. You mounted to the foot of the wall, and you encircled it, finding it too high and steep to climb. You sought a breach, and you found none. Know this, none enter the Great Erie, or if one enters, he never returns. Do not try again, for the second attempt will not result as did the first, but will have grave consequences for you. Heed this warning or evil fortune will come to you. M. O. W. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MASTER OF THE WORLD by Jules Verne, CHAPTER Seven, A THIRD MACHINE I confess that at first this letter dumbfounded me. O's and ah's slipped from my open mouth. The old servant stared at me, not knowing what to think. "'Oh, sir, is it bad news?' I answered, for I kept few secrets from this faithful soul by reading her the letter from end to end. She listened with much anxiety. "'A joke, without doubt,' said I, shrugging my shoulders. "'Well,' returned my superstitious handmaid, "'if it isn't from the devil, it's from the devil's country, anyway.' Left alone, I again went over this unexpected letter. Reflection inclined me yet more strongly to believe that it was the work of a practical joker. My adventure was well known. The newspapers had given it in full detail. Some satirist, such as exists even in America, must have written this threatening letter to mock me. To assume, on the other hand, that the Erie really served as the refuge of a band of criminals seemed absurd. 
If they feared that the police would discover their retreat, surely they would not have been so foolish as thus to force attention upon themselves. Their chief security would lie in keeping their presence there unknown. They must have realized that such a challenge from them would only arouse the police to renewed activity. Dynamite or melanite would soon open an entrance to their fortress. Moreover, how could these men have, themselves, gained entrance into the Erie unless there existed a passage which we had failed to discover? Assuredly the letter came from a jester, or a madman, and I need not worry over it, nor even consider it. Hence, though for an instant I had thought of showing this letter to Mr. Ward, I decided not to do so. Surely he would attach no importance to it. However, I did not destroy it, but locked it in my desk for safekeeping. If more letters came of the same kind, and with the same initials, I would attach as little weight to them as to this. Several days passed quietly. There was nothing to lead me to expect that I should soon quit Washington, though in my line of duty one is never certain of the morrow. At any moment I might be sent speeding from Oregon to Florida, from Maine to Texas, and this unpleasant thought haunted me frequently. If my next mission were no more successful than that to the Great Erie, I might as well give up and hand in my resignation from the force. Of the mysterious chauffeur or chauffeurs, nothing more was heard. I knew that our own government agents, as well as foreign ones, were keeping keen watch over all the roads and rivers, all the lakes and the coasts of America. Of course, the size of the country made any close supervision impossible, but these twin inventors had not before chosen secluded and unfrequented spots in which to appear. The main highway of Wisconsin on a great race-day, the harbor of Boston, incessantly crossed by thousands of boats, these were hardly what would be called hiding-places. If the daring driver had not perished, of which there was always strong probability, then he must have left America. Perhaps he was in the waters of the old world, or else resting in some retreat known only to himself, and in that case— Ah! I repeated to myself many times, for such a retreat, as secret, as inaccessible, this fantastic personage could not find one better than the Great Erie. But, of course, a boat could not get there, any more than an automobile. Only high-flying birds of prey, eagles or condors, could find refuge there. The 19th of June I was going to the police bureau when, on leaving my house, I noticed two men who looked at me with a certain keenness. Not knowing them I took no notice and if my attention was drawn to the matter it was because my servant spoke of it when I returned. For some days, she said, she had noticed that two men seemed to be spying upon me in the street. They stood constantly, perhaps a hundred steps from my house, and she suspected that they followed me each time I went up the street. "'You are sure?' I asked. "'Yes, sir.' and no longer ago than yesterday, when you came into the house, these men came slipping along in your footsteps, and then went away as soon as the door was shut behind you. You must be mistaken. I am not, sir. 
And if you met these two men, you would know them? I would. Good! I cried, laughing. I see you have the very spirit for a detective. I must engage you as a member of our force. Joke if you like, sir, but I have still two good eyes, and I don't need spectacles to recognize people. Someone is spying on you, that's certain, and you should put some of your men to track them in turn. All right, I promise to do so, I said to satisfy her. And when my men get after them, we shall soon know what these mysterious fellows want of me. In truth, I did not take the good soul's excited announcement very seriously. I added, however, When I go out, I will watch the people around me with great care. That will be best, sir. My poor old housekeeper was always frightening herself at nothing. If I see them again, she added, I will warn you before you set foot out of doors. Agreed. And I broke off the conversation, knowing well that if I allowed her to run on, she would end by being sure that Beezlebub himself and one of his chief attendants were at my heels. The two following days there was certainly no one spying on me, either at my exits or entrances. So I concluded my old servant had made much of nothing, as usual. But on the morning of the twenty-second of June, after rushing upstairs as rapidly as her age would permit, the devoted old soul burst into my room, and in a half-whisper gasped, "'Sir! Sir!' "'What is it?' "'They are there!' "'Who?' I queried, my mind on anything but the web she had been spinning about me. "'The two spies!' "'Ah! Those wonderful spies!' themselves, in the street, right in front of our windows, watching the house, waiting for you to go out. I went to the window, and raising just an edge of the shade, so as not to give any warning, I saw two men on the pavement. They were rather fine-looking men, broad-shouldered and vigorous, aged somewhat under forty, dressed in the ordinary fashion of the day, with slouched hats, heavy woollen suits, stout walking-shoes and sticks in hand. Undoubtedly they were staring persistently at my apparently unwatchful house. Then, having exchanged a few words, they strolled off a little way and returned again. "'Are you sure these are the same men you saw before?' "'Yes, sir.' Evidently I could no longer dismiss her warning as an hallucination, and I promised myself to clear up the matter. As to following the men myself, I was presumably too well known to them. To address them directly would probably be of no use. But that very day one of our best men should be put on watch, and if the spies returned on the morrow they should be tracked in their turn and watched until their identity was established. At the moment they were waiting to follow me to police headquarters, for it was there that I was bound as usual. If they accompanied me, I might be able to offer them a hospitality for which they would scarce thank me. I took my hat, and while the housekeeper remained peeping from the window, I went downstairs, opened the door, and stepped into the street. The two men were no longer there. Despite all my watchfulness, that day I saw no more of them as I passed along the streets. 
From that time on, indeed, neither my old servant nor I saw them again before the house, nor did I encounter them elsewhere. Their appearance, however, was stamped upon my memory. I would not forget them. Perhaps, after all, admitting that I had been the object of their espionage, they had been mistaken in my identity. Having obtained a good look at me, they now followed me no more. So, in the end, I came to regard this matter as of no more importance than the letter with the initials M.O.W. Then, on the 24th of June, there came a new event, to further stimulate both my interest and that of the general public, in the previous mysteries of the automobile and the boat. The Washington Evening Star published the following account, which was next morning copied by every paper in the country. Lake Kerdall in Kansas, forty miles west of Topeka, is little known. It deserves wider knowledge, and doubtless will have it hereafter, for attention is now drawn to it in a very remarkable way. This lake, deep among the mountains, appears to have no outlet. What it loses by evaporation it regains from the little neighboring streamlets and the heavy rains. Lake Kerdall covers about seventy-five square miles and its level is but slightly below that of the heights which surround it. Shut in among the mountains it can be reached only by narrow and rocky gorges. Several villages, however, have sprung up upon its banks. It is full of fish, and fishing boats cover its waters. Lake Kerdall is in many places fifty feet deep close to shore. Sharp, pointed rocks form the edges of this huge basin. Its surges, roused by high winds, beat upon its banks with fury, and the houses near at hand are often deluged with spray as if with the downpour of a hurricane. The lake, already deep at the edge, becomes yet deeper toward the center, where in some places soundings show over three hundred feet of water. The fishing industry supports a population of several thousands, and there are several hundred fishing boats in addition to the dozen or so of little steamers which serve the traffic of the lake. Beyond the circle of the mountains lie the railroads which transport the products of the fishing industry throughout Kansas and the neighboring states. This account of Lake Kerdall is necessary for the understanding of the remarkable facts which we are about to report and this is what the Evening Star then reported in its startling article. For some time past, the fishermen have noticed a strange upheaval in the waters of the lake. Sometimes it rises as if a wave surged up from its depths. Even in perfectly calm weather, when there is no wind whatever, this upheaval sometimes arises in a mass of foam. Tossed about by violent waves and unaccountable currents, boats have been swept beyond all control. Sometimes they have been dashed one against another, and serious damage has resulted. This confusion of the waters evidently has its origin somewhere in the depths of the lake, and various explanations have been offered to account for it. At first it was suggested that the trouble was due to seismic forces to some volcanic action beneath the lake. But this hypothesis had to be rejected when it was recognized that the disturbance was not confined to one locality, but spread itself over the entire surface of the lake, 
either at one part or another, in the centre or along the edges, travelling along almost in a regular line and in a way to exclude entirely all idea of earthquake or volcanic action. Another hypothesis suggested that it was a marine monster who thus upheaved the waters. But unless the beast had been born in the lake, and there grown to its gigantic proportions unsuspected, which was scarce possible, he must have come there from outside. Lake Kurdal, however, has no connection with any other waters. If this lake were situated near any of the oceans, there might be subterranean canals, but in the centre of America, and at the height of some thousands of feet above sea-level, this is not possible. In short, here is another riddle not easy to solve, and it is much easier to point out the impossibility of false explanations than to discover the true one. Is it possible that a submarine boat is being experimented with beneath the lake? Such boats are no longer impossible today. Some years ago, at Bridgeport, Connecticut, there was launched a boat, the Protector, which could go on the water, under the water, and also upon land. Built by an inventor named Lake, supplied with two motors, an electric one of seventy-five horsepower, and a gasoline one of two hundred and fifty horsepower, it was also provided with wheels a yard in diameter, which enabled it to roll over the roads as well as swim the seas. But even then, granting that the turmoil of Lake Kurdal might be produced by a submarine, brought to a high degree of perfection, there remains as before the question of how it could have reached Lake Kurdal. The lake, shut in on all sides by a circle of mountains, is no more accessible to a submarine than to a sea-monster. In whatever way this last puzzling question may be solved, the nature of this strange appearance can no longer be disputed since the 20th of June. On that day, in the afternoon, the schooner Markel, while speeding with all sails set, came into violent collision with something just below the water-level. There was no shoal nor rock near, for the lake in this part is eighty or ninety feet deep. The schooner, with both her bow and her side badly broken, ran great danger of sinking. She managed, however, to reach the shore before her decks were completely submerged. When the Markel had been pumped out and hauled up on shore, an examination showed that she had received a blow near the bow as if from a powerful ram. From this it seems evident that there is actually a submarine boat which darts about beneath the surface of Lake Kurdal with most remarkable rapidity. The thing is difficult to explain. Not only is there a question as to how did the submarine get there, but why is it there? Why does it never come to the surface? What reason has its owner for remaining unknown? Are other disasters to be expected from its reckless course? The article in the Evening Star closed with this truly striking suggestion. After the mysterious automobile came the mysterious boat. Now comes the mysterious submarine. Must we conclude that the three engines are due to the genius of the same inventor? and that the three vehicles are in truth but one? End of chapter